Something I like to tell graduate students is we're actually better positioned to be entrepreneurs than we give ourselves credit for. We're very hardworking and most importantly, very good at multitasking. After completing his PhD, Kevin Barnett blazed his own trail into the world. As the co-founder of Pyron, a startup dedicated to improving commercial access to chemicals derived from biomass, he stretched himself as a scientist and as an entrepreneur. In this season two episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of Chemical and Engineering News' 2020 Talented 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Barnett about how his path to becoming a scientist began. Like most people coming out of high school, perhaps, I didn't know exactly what um, what every engineering major entailed. I thought chemical engineering would be the, the best pick to uh, pursue a career in environmental issues. But once I joined, I actually realized that the majority of chemical engineering, especially where I was down in Texas, is petroleum focused. So I still enjoyed the chemistry. I loved um, the courses, but it... I, certain, I, I kind of had to come back out into environmental issues once I got back into graduate school. And yet, I believe this must have taught you something, because if we think about the job you do now, it's really looking into alternatives, right, to the typical oil-based chemical feedstock. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the vast majority of my friends, they got some nice jobs down in Houston for some big petrochemical companies. And I was kind of the weirdo that went up to Wisconsin to do my graduate studies and environmental issues. and But I've always been, in addition to just environmental issues, I've always been uh, inspired on forward-looking new technologies. And I think that's actually what caused me to go to graduate school. But being able to do it and be in an, a group that was so focused on environmental issues was certainly a win. What kind of role, you know, the people you studied with, your professors uh, during your you know, initial science studies, but even later during graduate school played in your perception of what your role in the chemical community might, might become. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy choice that one to, you know, get, get out of a PhD and, and jumping into, uh, you know, an entrepreneurship position. Um, and so, you know, you must have had some role models or some, someone supporting you on the way. Yes, of course. And, and, you know, the key one was my PhD advisor, Professor George Huber at the University of Wisconsin. He's fairly well known in this space of conversion of renewable biomass feedstocks to useful fuels and chemicals. So that was one core reason I, I wanted to study for him. Um, so, of course, he's an instrumental part of my graduate studies and Pyran today still. Um, but as I moved forward, I, I started and started starting Pyran, I met more and more people that had business experience and real world chemical industry experience. Uh, for example, the former chief technology officer of Dow Chemical, Bill Banholzer, is on Pyran's board and involved very early in Pyran. And there's a few others I can name, but I think that mixture of both the academic and industrial um, advisors was instrumental to helping me grow as an entrepreneur. It makes a lot of sense. And, and at which stage the idea of Pyron started taking shape? During my PhD research, uh, I was a part of a large Department of Energy project focused on making high-value chemicals from renewable lignocellulosic biomass feedstocks. Um, 
and one key part of this project, it was actually very focused on both the fundamentals of the chemistry and the economic aspects. So we were looking at full plant scale economics, minimum selling prices, IRR, while I was also getting turnover frequencies on the catalyst in the lab. So it was a great project. And I think that's one reason that Pyran formed out of this project. Um, as we showed that in addition to this great chemistry, we also had great economics. And that combination is really what fueled uh, the beginning of Pyran. And this is what chemical engineers take it completely different than, than the typical chemists, right? Is your taking chemical engineering linked to your I don't know, idea of doing something meaningful, something practical that can actually happen in real life. Yeah, I think that's a fairly accurate statement. I mean, there's some great startups coming out of the chemistry department. There's lots of chemical engineers that don't focus on economics. But as a general point, I think that's true. And I think that's really something that Professor George Huber and the other people on the Department of Energy Project team brought to the table that is pretty unique. Um, there had been a lot of researchers looking at making our product 1,5-pentane dial from biomass, but there was very um, catalysis focus and not economics focused, using a lot of very expensive noble metal rhodium-based catalyst, where we kind of counterintuitively expanded the number of reaction steps from one to three, which from a high level you would think, well, more steps, more expensive. But having the actual economic data, Aspen modeling actually showed that our catalyst costs were 50 times lower. Um, so this is an example where having this um, economic analysis in conjunction with the fundamental catalysis led to this outcome. It's interesting because this is a, a fairly rare example of economic considerations leading to sort of technical choices at during a sort of PhD project, uh, which is not something I've heard very often. Um, so was this somehow part of the, of the whole project from the beginning? Certainly not at the very beginning. I was a typical struggling graduate student. Um, my first project was trying to make 1.5 pentane dial in the one-step process, and it was a typical first year and a half of graduate school, a lot of mistakes in the lab, a lot of learnings, and then the yields were not good enough. And that's kind of when we were fortunate to discover this new chemistry. And I don't want to downplay the chemistry. Um, it, while the economics did drive the research, the chemistry is extremely interesting. And, 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 and when we analyze the chemistry and the fundamentals, it's really the reason why the economics are so beneficial. And there's some aspects of biomass that made this possible, um, the economics possible. Okay, so let's let's do a step backward and, and one forward at the same time. Okay, so I, I think I think it's fair now to introduce Pyron properly, uh, and so let you explain what Pyron is and what it focuses on. Oh, yeah, so my startup company Pyron focuses on making five carbon chemicals from renewable lignocellulosic biomass resources. The first product that we focused on was called One Five Pentane Dial. Um, it's pretty simple chemical structure, five carbon uh, atoms, aliphatic chain with two hydroxyl groups on the end. So as you can picture, being difunctional, it's, it's very good for making polymers. Um, um, and it's, so it's a key monomer in a, a lot of different types of polymers, polyester polyols, polycarbonate polyols, acrylates. Um, it's really a core of the, the backbone of the resin. 
so a wide variety of markets. But um, the key premise here is that in the petrochemical industry, there's lots of four and six carbon molecules. Just by nature, when you take crude out of the ground, there's just a dearth of five carbon feedstocks. And it's expensive and difficult to break or make those carbon-carbon bonds. Whereas lignocellulosic biomass, if you're familiar, it has three main components, lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose, with hemicellulose being a five-carbon feedstock. So that's actually an inherent advantage um, in making five-carbon feedstocks from biomass versus petroleum. And that's kind of the core premise of Pyran. So let's start uh from the synthesis then. So what, what you, I, I guess you start from furfuran, right? Which is a, quite, quite, quite a standard starting point. That's correct. So there's a conversion pathway either from the raw biomass or from the hemicellulose to convert it to furfural, which is the main five carbon platform chemical from biomass. And that is pyrene's feedstock. And then there's basically a reduction process there. Yeah, the core premise being instead of oxidizing petroleum, from a four or six carbon feedstock here, you're selectively reducing from the five carbon feedstock and you're filling kind of that petrochemical gap where there isn't many five carbon molecules. Um, it's actually a four step process from furfural. Um, the novelty of pyrene kind of starts from the next molecule, which is why I called it three step. But basically it's a reduction. You hydrogenate the furfural, fully hydrogenate it um, to tetrahydrofurfural alcohol. Then you undergo a vapor phase dehydration to dihydropyran, a liquid phase hydration to 2-hydroxy tetrahydropyran, and finally a, a further hydrogenation to the 1,5-pentane diol. It sounds complex, but um, the yields are very high in each step, and the chemistry is, is really unique, and um, that's really what I spent my PhD research on. I guess on one hand is having the chemistry working in the lab and on the other hand is industrializing a process and starting a company and actually starting making this commercially. What is the real challenge there? A key thing is, you know, my research was heterogeneous catalysis. It's looking at the fundamentals of the catalyst. Um, however, from a business perspective, it's better to have more simple catalysts that are ideally actually commercially available. So getting out of the mindset of trying to find a brand new, fancy, multifunctional catalyst to actually trying to simplify the catalytic system is a learning I had. And fortunately, the key to Pyran's uh, technology is the chemistry, not necessarily the exact um, how fancy the catalysts are. Um, yeah. So we were able to actually find industrial catalysts that we can plug in for a process and that lowers the costs and the uh, difficulty of scale up by quite a bit. And there's a lot more considerations than catalysts, but that's one example of the shift in mindset from academia to industrial scale up. The pentane dial seems quite interesting to me because you said it at the beginning, you know, these five carbon monomers are relatively rare coming from the oil fields. Right, but still, pentanediol is not something completely new. You know, it was known to be a useful, right? And so, in a way, you didn't compete against a a, a super well-established economics, right, of of a product that you had to displace completely. You, you were kind of filling a void in a way. Am I right? That's exactly right, Paulo, and great insight. Um... I kind of like, when you think about replacing petroleum from biomass, you can kind of t think of it in two extremes. One is replicate, uh, like ethylene glycol for PET. You're making the same exact molecule, 
very little technical risk, but then you're competing on price. Or you could make a brand new uh, material, um, let's say furan dicarboxylic acid is a big new one to replace PET films, which has completely different properties. And Paulo, as you mentioned, pyrene's kind of in an in-between where 1,5-pentane dial is out there in very small volumes from petroleum at very high cost, but it is something that is known and it is a chemical that's on the market today. So we're really filling a void as well as finding new applications that were previously economically prohibitive uh, that we can uh, grow because of our better cost position. So do you think this is the key why renewable technologies have been so far in my opinion, at least, fairly disappointing. I think people have focused a lot on trying to replace, right? Oil, oil derived products rather than trying and rethink the whole thing. I think you're exactly right, Paulo. Um, if you just think of chemical functionalities, I think we kind of have a, a narrow mindset into what's out there today. Um, but when you think about biomass and its inherent oxygen functionality, um, there's just such a wider chemical space that we can be filling that we tend to overlook. Um, and I think there's inherent functionalities in biomass that we need to better advantage to make new materials. On the other hand, if I think about startups, you need to survive, right? So you need to have something to sell as soon as reasonably possible. So if you really are aiming at disrupting completely a market, you might not have a market in the first place. Do you think this is hampering somehow the success of companies uh, uh, focusing on biorenewables? Yes, the barrier to introducing a brand new to the world material is extremely high, especially with how risk averse many of these large chemical companies are today. There are some coming online, but I think you're correct in that that has been a difficulty in new biomass technologies. I do think that's where Pyrene is fortunate in that there is a market out there, but not a large market out there for 1,5-pentane dial. So our risk in introducing this new molecule is a little lower than if it were a brand new to the world product. And as you said, we're a startup. We have to focus on what can make money soon. So that helps us get our foot into the marketplace. And from there, we can continue to grow and introduce new products that may be a little more uh, risky or new um, once we've established ourselves. At the best of your knowledge, is there any, are there many of, of similar situations in the market? Are there other pentendiol kind of situations out there that, that yourself or other companies could potentially leverage going forward? It's hard for me to think of an exact example off the top of my head. Of course, there's a lot of uh, you know companies trying to introduce bio-based materials to the marketplace across the spectrum of directly replacing current petroleum-based molecules and bringing in brand new materials to the market. Um, you know, for example, there's a lot of companies making 1,4-butane dial, which is one carbon atom less than our product, but is abundant from petroleum. Yeah. Um, and they, there's been some struggles in that area replacing the lower cost butane dial uh, molecule. I would say off the top of my head, Pyron's in a very fortunate position to be in between the two extremes and to have um, a product that's on the market, but not large. I think it's a pretty rare position to be in. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. And if you are, 
why don't you request your free podcast t-shirt? It can be a fun way to show your love for science. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how to do that, as well as how to access content recommendations from our guest. And now, back to our conversation. How much for Pyran and other companies focusing on these sort of renewable sources face the difficulties of having a sort of inconsistent or unstable, if you wish, source of raw materials? Because everything coming from, from biomasses is not particularly consistent batch to batch, right? Uh, certainly less than, less than the typical oil field stock. That's a great point, Paolo, and a huge consideration in any bi- new biomass technology. I see it as kind of a cycle where the more um, commercializable biomass technologies come online, the more feedstock comes online, the more the lower the risk in developing new uh, biomass feedstock fractionation technologies. Um, we're fortunate again that today our feedstock furfral is made already at world scale, um, primarily from corn cobs and sugarcane, but gas. However, it's critical for us and for other biomass technologies to develop more new and more stable biomass sources. And the more companies like Pyron that that are out there, the more likely that there will be feedstock companies that are willing to to make our feedstocks and integrate the whole market. Does this mean in a way that it's going to become easier for you guys going forward as the market develops? We think so. We're seeing a lot of um, a lot of momentum in developing new biomass to chemicals technologies. So, for instance, uh, pulp and paper mills. Uh, the paper industry, you know, it's it's in a little trouble. That you know, people are more digital. They're looking for ways to increase um, you know money streams from their pulp and paper mills. And one way to do that is to make value add chemicals from their processes. So it takes a lot of investment to reconfigure their their capital, their their plants. But um, that's something that a lot of pulp and paper mills are looking to do. And I think looking into the future, that's going to be a great stable source of biomass feedstocks. Is there anything else besides pentendiol that Pyran is currently looking at and working on? What's next for you guys? There's quite a few downstream five carbon products we're looking at. We're actually already sampling our first product, which is pentane diol diacrylate. So it's adding on two acrylate monomers on the end of our 1,5 pentane diol, and that's used in ultraviolet cure coatings. Um, and that's a great example of where how we're looking at expanding as far as the chemistry is concerned. You have this difunctional 1,5 pentane diol um, with the hydroxyl groups. But, you know, you can picture uh, two uh, acid groups, two uh, amine groups uh, with fairly simple chemical transformations. Um, So, you know, and just like pentane diol, um, it's the same concept where those markets are also underserved. Those five carbon markets are underserved from petroleum. So you can see quite a bit of expansion opportunities once we establish ourselves. If you had to imagine the market decades from now, maybe a couple of decades from now, you know, with all these new technologies coming in and and proposing new monomers, new starting points for, you know, more complex materials manufacturing, do you foresee the world being significantly different uh, from the chemical perspective than it is today? Yes, I think it's going to be a much bigger mix of bio-based and petroleum-based molecules. 
Um, I don't envision, especially in the next couple of decades, that petroleum will be replaced. And it'd be hypocritical of me to say that biomass has inherent functionalities that are beneficial and say and claim that petroleum doesn't because there are certain molecules that are easier and more cost effective and have better functionality that you can make from petroleum as well. So I do see a mixture happening, whereas um, the molecules that are continuing to be made from petroleum, we just have to improve the recyclability of those molecules. And I guess the key comes from the definition, right? Is, is there a new ability, right? So I, I think we all have to accept at some point that um, the world we live in has finite resources and we cannot keep consuming them forever, you know? Yes. And, and, and so I think, I think we are far from, you know, running out of oil, but um, um, yeah, th that day will come at some point, or at, at least a day when extracting oil is not gonna be economically viable anymore, will, will sooner, sooner or later come. And, and, and I think we're better being ready for that moment rather than, than waiting for the last uh, drop to be extracted from the soil. Very true. If you think about the life cycle analysis, um, you know, biomass based materials, you're sequestering carbon from the air into the biomass, into the product. So that's one key benefit over petroleum. Uh, but the second thing we need to look at is end of life. And this applies to both biomass and petroleum based materials. And that's improved recyclability to further create that cycle. Um, so I think both of these are important considerations as we move forward. Of course. On the other hand, you have some other sort of controversial aspects of the use of biorenewables. And I think uh, what I'm thinking specifically is if people start replacing agricultural products for human consumption and, you know, fe feeding people literally for something to make, you know, for energy purposes or for making, you know, ma materials of some kind. And, and that is controversial. I think the real value is where you can, you can derive your feedstock from waste right for something that cannot be used for other purposes i think furfural is fairly well positioned from this perspective but there are other compounds that aren't really and biofuels are some of those that's exactly right um an important consideration in looking at biomass technologies is well what type of biomass and um yes starch base there's other types that are competing with the food supply and we need to be very conscious of that and where those fit in um but the Feedstock Pyran uses and some other companies use is lignocellulosic, which is typically the non-food portion of the biomass. So as I said, it's the corn cob, not the kernel. Uh, it's stuff that's honestly, it's, it's burnt. It's laid in the field and you burn it or you just let it sit there. Um, so, and as you mentioned, Paulo, furfral is made from the corn cob. So it's really tapping into those waste streams that I think is the future of biochemicals. Can you mention for the benefit of our audience, what are other potential key chemicals from feedstock that, that could become relevant in, in, in the coming years, uh, you know, together with furfural? There are some that are already actual, I suppose. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, looking at the main components of lignocellulosic biomass, lignin, hemicellulose, and cellulose, I've been talking about the five carbon hemicellulose stream, which honestly is more of the forgotten stepchild of the three. <laughs> um, so we're one of the first people really focused on that stream, but there's actually even more attention to the cellulose stream, the six carbon. Um, today, that's where your uh, corn-based ethanol is made from, well, the six carbon stream of other biomass feedstocks. 
Um, and the big, I think the really hot bio-based material at the moment is called furan dicarboxylic acid or FDCA. When you combine that with plant-based ethylene glycol, you have a 100% PET replacement plastic film. So water bottles, things of that nature. That's coming from the six carbon fraction of biomass. Are you at Pyron planning to focus on these starting materials at all? Or you want to stick to your five carbons monomers for now? We're really focused on the five carbon. As you mentioned, as a startup, you have the 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 money and the personnel to only do so much. But I do see in the future where you can integrate Pyrance technology in an integrated bio facility where you take use our technology to create five carbon value add products, but and you use other people's technology to valorize the lignin and the cellulose streams. And I think that's certainly on the horizon. I'd like to go back to your you know the end of your PhD and 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 the time where you started uh funding and working on Pyron and uh, because this is fascinating in my mind. You have a very unique profile. There aren't that many people funding a company straight out of their PhD. Uh, and, and I guess, as we said before, uh, there, there's been a, a, a strong role of some of your professors and supporters and advisors, uh, but uh, you know, it must have been a very, very challenging time for you. Can you comment on how it is you know, becoming the CEO of a startup, coming from a scientific background. Yes, it's certainly been a challenge and a new experience. Um, but something I like to tell graduate students is we're actually better positioned to be entrepreneurs than we give ourselves credit for. Um, by definition, almost by going to graduate school, we're very hardworking and very, and most importantly, very good at multitasking. Um, and that's really the name of the game in entrepreneurship. So with the one caveat that, yes, you don't have the business experience, you don't know what you don't know, you really need some good business advisors to help you with those things. But as far as running the business on the ground day to day, I think graduate students are actually well positioned to do so based off their inherent traits. So I guess there's been a number of things that have been easier than you thought. It's all been difficult, but <laughs> I think that um, the traits that I had to learn in graduate school lent well to dealing with the, the things you have to deal with in entrepreneurship that perhaps some quote unquote business people that us chemists think are more well suited for running businesses may not have. So just throwing that out there for the world. <laughs> <laughs> and what's been your biggest challenge? It's, there's, there's a lot to running a business. Um, and as I mentioned, not knowing what you don't know is the biggest challenge. So you're learning every day something new. Um, and it's just about managing those challenges and, and taking them head on and utilizing your advisors. But it's certainly uh, a lot of work and a lot of learning on top of your graduate studies. So we're advantaged in that we, we know the technology better than anyone if you're starting a company out of graduate school. But you have to then layer on the market the fundraising, the scale up, those are all things that you have to learn to start a chemical venture. The way you're speaking about it is very clear that this is what you want to do, right? And you're very committed to, to your path now and, and there's no going back for you, am I right? That's correct. I don't think I'll ever not be an entrepreneur at this point. <laughs> do you ever think that if your PhD didn't give the positive results that you actually got, you could have been on a completely different career. Absolutely. 
PhD students can't choose their project um, in a lot of cases. Um, it's actually very fortunate to be able to start a company out of your PhD project. A lot of things have to go right, things I alluded to earlier on the economics and such. Um, but if you have an eye towards entrepreneurship, which I did, it helps you see when opportunities do arise out of your PhD research. And if it doesn't, which is most often the case, you can always join a startup company um, coming out of school and then and go that route as well. But certainly um, it was not a foregone conclusion. After this consideration, I think this is a perfect segue into my typical final questions about all my interviews. Uh, you know, now you are you're an entrepreneur with an ambitious plan. You've already achieved a lot, and 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 I'm sure there's bright future ahead of you. Uh, uh, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone younger than you, just starting in their studies or career? A big piece of advice I would give to graduate students, whether they're interested in entrepreneurship or not, um, is actually to slow down just a little. <laughs> this may be, seem counterintuitive coming from someone that's starting a company, but looking back at my graduate research, I think I could have really benefited from slowing down, taking more reading days and thinking critically. I was always 120% in the lab experiments all day into the evenings. Um, I would actually recommend slowing down. Not only is it better for your work-life balance, but I actually think it provides clarity in how you think about things and you actually be more productive in the long term. Um, I think as younger, uh, excited graduate students, we tend to maybe put our heads down and maybe work too hard sometimes. That was Dr. Kevin Barnett, co-founder of Pyron in Madison, Wisconsin, and one of the chemical and engineering news talent at 12. Thanks for joining us for this season two episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, and keep an ear out for more. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Barnett's book, video, podcast, and other content recommendations. Look in the episode notes for the URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt with one click, or visit thermofficial.com slash bctl this episode was produced by matt ferris matthew stock and emma jean weinstein